Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We find in Luke 9, 21 through 27, a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his 12 apostles. And the conversation takes place on the heels of what we referred to last Sunday as the Great Confession. The Great Confession was voiced, of course, by the Apostle Peter. In answer to the Lord Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter, responding for the 12, says, you are the Christ of God. That is, you are the anointed liberator of Israel sent from God. Now you recall that we said that most Jewish people at that time thought of this liberating Messiah as a mighty warrior king who would uh, deliver the nation of Israel from the oppressors, the Romans, and set up an earthly kingdom. And he would do so by force. And in light of that expectation, what Jesus says next would be very hard for his disciples to believe. And so let's read now Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 21. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now this passage begins with a paradox. These apostles that Jesus was speaking with were sent ones. That's what the word apostle means, those sent by God with a message. And here is Jesus instructing those sent by God with a message not to declare the message. That is, he said, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. And so that brings a question to our mind. Why would Jesus give such a prohibition to his apostles? We know, of course, that later he would instruct them to go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey whatsoever things he had commanded. And presuming, presumably, those everything he had commanded includes the fact that he is the Christ of God. Well, the answer is likely that of timing. It simply was not yet the right time in God's infinite wisdom for Christ to die. When the time came, Jesus was ready and he willingly went to the cross, but that time was not yet. He confirmed that truth with his very next statement here in Luke 9. He says, the Son of Man. Remember, that's Jesus' favorite designation for himself. It's a messianic term from the book of Daniel. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He uses this phrase, he must, the Son of Man must suffer many things. That, that is a divine necessity. On Wednesday evenings, we've been studying through the model prayer. And I invite you to come if you're looking for a Bible study on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock up in room 245. 
And we've been taking it verse by verse and phrase by phrase. And, and for the last two weeks, we've looked at the phrase, thy will be done in the model prayer. And we've tried to define what the will of God is and how do you recognize it and view it from a number of perspectives. And two of the perspectives we've been looking at the Lord's will is what theologians call His decretive will and His preceptive will. His decretive will is all those things that God has said will happen in His own heart and mind and in the secret counsels of God will happen. That is, if God decides to do something, it's going to happen. Would you agree? And then His preceptive will are those things that He's revealed in His Word, the Bible, that He says are truth, and that is part of His will as well. Well, really we have both of those that, that play here because Luke writes these down and they're preserved in our canon of Scripture. But he's really speaking, I think, of God's decreed will, that it is God's decreed will that Jesus Christ would die an atoning sacrifice for sinners such as us. And, and the implication of that is Jesus was not a victim. What we have here is the playing out of God's eternal redemptive plan at just the right time. Not one second too soon, not one moment too late. And Jesus says that decreed will of the Heavenly Father includes some things that are painful. Four things He says. First of all that includes Him suffering many things. If you go back and read the four Gospels you find that indeed Jesus suffered many things. There was the rejection of His own family. There was the maligning of His good name. The fact that they stripped Him of His clothing and attempted to strip Him of His dignity. They placed a crown of thorns on His head and mocked Him. They beat Him with whips. They spit upon Him. And they ultimately crucified Him on the cross. All those things collectively are known as the passion of the Lord Jesus. But then He said also He must be rejected by the religious elite. Scripture says He came into His own and His own received Him not. We saw last week that uh, specifically the Pharisees and scribes said that Jesus performed His miracles in the power of Satan. The miracles were too obvious and too verifiable to deny, and so they said He's doing this in the power of Satan. And then Jesus predicts His own death, and then His resurrection. Not just the, the resurrection in the generic sense that most Jewish people believe that in the end times there was going to be a resurrection. Jesus predicted the very day of His resurrection on the third day. It would be hard to imagine how Jesus could have been more explicitly clear about God's eternal redemptive plan. And yet, knowing that plan, He didn't turn and hide in the desert. He didn't make a break for it. Scripture says He set His face towards Jerusalem and He went willingly to the cross. And those who call Jesus a victim either of the Romans or the Jews or of Satan are sadly mistaken. But this statement about suffering was not just about Jesus. It was also the possibility that any and all who follow close to Jesus will be called upon to endure the same. Look what he says in verse 23. He was saying to them all, without exception, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and Follow me. Now, when we think of people, groups, who have suffered great loss here on earth for the sake of Christ, in our minds we often place them on a pedestal as if they were some rare superset of Christians. And we should honor martyrs. We should pray for those who are being persecuted in the world today, and, and that is real. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who face persecution every day. 
But I don't think that's all that Jesus had in mind here. In fact, I view my task this morning to disabuse us, and I include myself in that equation, of the notion that the words that Jesus spoke to the 12 that day are nothing short of normative Christianity. What I mean by that, or in other words, this sort of cross-bearing, self-denying, kingdom-investing, gospel-proclaiming, transformed thinking that Jesus lays before His apostles here is to be true of all believers. It's not just some subset of Christians that are especially devout. It is to be the description of all true believers. And there are four points I want to make in that regard. Number one, it is normative Christianity for a born-again person to live selflessly. That's what Jesus meant when He said you must deny yourself. It means to live selflessly. I thought about the question all week, long and hard, what would that look like? How do you define what it means to deny yourself? And, and the best that I was able to come up with after a week of thinking about it is to tell you to do this. Observe how most people in our culture live and think and order their lives and do the polar opposite of that. That's what it would mean to deny yourself. And I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but really seriously, because we live in an age of rampant narcissism, of, of self-love. I, I don't know if it's more pronounced today than ever before, or it, it's just that we have more access to it through media and, and technology. We live in a world of selfies. We live in a world of, of people who have access to a computer keyboard who seem to be unfiltered in their strong opinions on everything that comes across the news feed. I told a preacher brother of mine the other day that it is not a sin to have an unarticulated thought. <laughs> there are times when silence is, is appropriate. So, so the question is, what would it look like if we're living selflessly? Now, the best we can do is, is the negative. See what other people are doing and don't do that. But I think it's more than that. What would it look like positively if we were a church and, and made up of individuals who were living selflessly? Well, several things I think would be true. One is we would be giving up our perceived right to be offended at personal slights. We seem to be a group of people in the Western world who has our default setting to offense and, and we're hunting and looking for reasons to be offended. But for those who are walking with Christ and living our lives like Him, we have developed some pretty thick skin, right? We, we, we don't always look for personal offense. We don't latch on to our perceived right never to have anything go, go wrong or someone against us. Secondly, we would give up our perceived right to more or different or better than the Lord provides. A few weeks ago we looked at the concept of common grace. How God gives us good food to eat and shelter and clean water and good air. And how every good and perfect gift comes from the Heavenly Father and is to be received as such. And we included marriage in that equation and our jobs. But when God gives us those things that are necessary for life, sometimes we have the tendency to uh, complain just a little bit. 
And that is evidence of the fact that we believe that we deserve more or different or better than what God has provided. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different areas. One way it does is in your career. When you see someone who you believe to be less qualified than you pass you by on the career ladder, the tendency is envy. The tendency is to believe that you deserve better. Rather than thanking the Lord for the job that He's given you that you can provide for your family. And that's the, the other thing we, we think we need more of often is money. We see people who seem to have more than we and we think we deserve what they have. Another area we sometimes think we deserve better is, is our health. When uh, specifically you have a long-term illness or something that uh, maybe you're afflicted with all your life or one of your children are. You think, I, I don't deserve this. I deserve better health. There are many in this room who think you deserve a better marriage. That God has somehow shackled you to a mate that uh, is here on earth to make your life miserable. And yet the Bible says that marriage is the grace of God. It is a gift from God. And so we, we are living selflessly when we give up our perceived right to more different of God's blessings. And then, and then thirdly, we give up altogether pride, jealousy, and the desire for attention and fame. John the Baptist had it right when he saw Jesus coming and said, I must decrease. He must increase. Well, that certainly is not an all-inclusive list of what Jesus means here, but I think it would be a good start. But friends, you know, if you've lived more than a couple of weeks as an adult, it is a battle we fight internally every day. That's why Jesus said to take up your cross daily. That's why Paul said he died daily. That's why he said we have to mortify and keep putting to death the deeds of, of the flesh. No matter how long you walk with the Lord, you still fight the battle. Paul said near the end of his life in Romans, the things he doesn't want to do, he does. And the things that he does want to do, he doesn't do. Who will deliver me, he says, from this body of, of death? Well, the second thing we see is that a person who is living the normal Christian life is investing wisely. Investing wisely. Jesus often gave investment advice. Not about money. In fact, rarely about money. Mostly about life. Wise investing is the art of placing resources in things that have lasting and true value. And Jesus gives some wonderful advice about investing that which is valuable, in this case, our own souls. Look what he says. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? One of the other gospel writers says, loses his own soul. Because that is the essential self, right? That is the true us, the hidden person of the heart. We invest in, all people do, what we see value in. So many people in the world today invest almost all their economic resources in entertainment. The latest gadget, the latest movie, the latest fad, because they live in fear that they're going to miss out on something that is great. That's a foolish thing to invest in. Has its place but it's not to be our God. Other people seem to invest in their own image 
And so they buy fancy clothes and drive around in flashy cars to try to convince people they're important. Some people a little more wiser invest most of their resources in their health. They eat well and exercise at the gym five times a week and their, their life is devoted to living a long and healthy life. And there is some benefit to that. But uh, a verse I really like is bodily exercise profiteth little. <laughs> now I'm, I'm being facetious. We should be good stewards of, of the body that the Lord gives us. But I think what he's saying when he says bodily exercise profiteth little, that is it's little compared to spiritual exercise and spiritual investment. Jesus states here in no uncertain terms that the most valuable resource any human being has is his soul. Now what makes something valuable? Well, a couple of things. One is rarity. And how many souls do you have? You have one. You can't get more rare than that. And then the second thing that makes something value is its eternality or lack thereof. That is its longevity. And the human soul, the Bible says, is, is eternal. We will live somewhere forever, either in heaven or hell. And so Jesus says, even if you had all of these temporary things, the whole world, if somehow every resource on planet earth was in your name and you lost your soul, it would have been a fool's errand. You would have invested poorly. And all those things have one thing in common. They are temporary. That's why we're instructed in the New Testament not to lay up treasures on earth because they depreciate in value, either through theft or corrosion, inflation. But we're to lay up treasures in heaven because this is eternal investment. And a Christian who's living the, the normal Christian life, not a super Christian, Someone who's living the normal Christian life is someone who's investing wisely into his soul. And thirdly, this, this normative Christian life is one that is proclaiming boldly. Look what he says next. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Again, he's speaking of, of normal Christians, not, not those with a gun to their head. Many of us in this room grew up during the Cold War. And we lived, or they tried to make us live in fear of the Russians, right? And, and all the movies from the 70s and 80s of the communists invading here in America and throwing us all in prison. And Christians thought we, we may have a gun to our head one day and you either have to deny Christ and, and live or proclaim Christ and die. I remember laying in my bed many times as a child wondering, did I have what it takes to say, I believe in Jesus. Now let's not discount that because that still happens. And it happened within the last few decades. We have a man in our church, he may be in this service, whose father was an evangelical pastor in Poland when the Germans invaded to begin World War II. And his father, because of his relationship with Jesus, was arrested and thrown into a German prisoner of war camp. And when the Russians liberated Poland towards the end of World War II, when the Russians found out that he was an evangelical pastor, they arrested him and threw him in their prison. And he spent the remainder of the war and even beyond in a Russian concentration camp for seven years 
he was separated from his church and from his children and his wife. That happened to someone you know. So it happens. But I don't think that's all that Jesus had in mind when he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. He's speaking of, of judgment. And certainly he's not saying if we have a moment of weakness and deny Jesus when we feel our life is in danger that suddenly we're, we're doomed to hell forever. There's a good example in the New Testament of one who he redeemed, the Apostle Peter, who cursed and denied he even knew Jesus, but the Lord reached out and, and restored him, didn't give up on him. But, but I think what he means is, is I think the verse that typifies our own culture today that is, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We live in an upside down world. And most people in our culture are proud of what they should be ashamed of. And they're ashamed of what they should embrace. They parade their sin out as if it's something that is worthy of praise and admiration. And they deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he means. If you deny Christ, His rightful place in your heart and mind, if you fail to bow your knee to His Lordship, when you stand before God on the day of judgment, He will deny that He knows you because He doesn't. And you will be judged accordingly. Yet, on the other hand, if you welcome and embrace Christ and walk with Him in the here and now, Romans 8, 1 is for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean he won't chasten you and bring you back into line if you stray. It means that you don't have to worry about facing his wrath and his ultimate judgment. And you proclaim him and your relationship with him boldly. But, but there's one more point I want to make before we go as it relates to uh, normative Christianity. And that is this. The, the normal Christian life is a life that has had one's thinking changed. I'm talking about thinking expectantly. Look what he says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You know, that, that threw some people in, in Jesus' day, and it still throws some people today. They, they read over that text in a hurry, and they say, is Jesus saying some of these apostles are going to be given physical immortality? Are there the apostles walking around today that, that never died? Because we take the kingdom of God, meaning His second coming, but that's not what He means at all. There are a couple of possibilities. Maybe He means there, there are those here who uh, are going to, to be alive when the day of Pentecost comes, the birthday of the church. But more than likely, and I learned this the first day of seminary, the most obvious and simple answer is usually the right one. And the most obvious and simple answer is in verse 28, which is our text for next Sunday. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, and they went on the mountain to pray. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know this is what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus took this inner circle of disciples up on the mountain and somehow supernaturally pulled back his flesh and allowed them to see his divine glory and the kingdom was truly here on earth. And some in that conversation that day got to see it, namely Peter and James and John. But in conclusion, there, there's a few things I, I want to tie this together with, and that is this. Jesus' prophecies are true, aren't they? 
We talked about his office of Messiah last Sunday. And it's threefold. He's the prophet, he's the priest, and, and the king. And, and the role of a prophet is to proclaim truth and sometimes to predict truth. In fact, the Bible says how you know a prophet is from God is that if what he says is going to happen, happens. And everything that Jesus said is going to happen, happens. What did he tell them? He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. Did that happen? Yes. He said, I'm going to be rejected by the scribes and Pharisees. Did that happen? Yes. He says, I'm going to die. Did that happen? And then he said, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Did that happen? Yes. And yet there's one more prophecy of the Lord Jesus that is yet to be fulfilled. We read it yesterday at a funeral service here. We read it almost every funeral. John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Jesus began to tell them how he was going to go away for a little while, but he would come again. That where, where he is, they, his apostles, his followers can, can also be forever. Jesus predicted his second coming. And friends, just as surely as he predicted his own suffering, his own rejection, his own death and resurrection, all the prophecies and promises of God are yes and amen. He is coming again. But this time when he comes, he's coming to judge. The question before us all this Mother's Day Sunday morning is, are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment? How do you know if you're ready? Well, the Bible says, here's a good litmus test to know if you're a true Christian. He says, first of all, um, are you living a life that is like Jesus? That is, are you living selflessly? Or are you living just like your lost friends? Are you running after the same things they're running after? Or do you live differently? Do you think differently? Do you order your life in a, in a fundamentally different way? Do you deny yourself and give up your perceived rights of personal offense and, and, and your belief that you deserve more, different, or better in this life? Have you given up pride and, and jealousy and a desire for personal attention? Are you investing wisely in your soul? Or are you, like everyone else on your block, laying up treasure in heaven, living as if this is all there is? Are you, friends, proclaiming boldly your relationship with God, with Christ, through your verbal witness and evangelism? Or are you ashamed of Christ? Have you denied Him here on earth? And I think maybe most obviously, are you thinking expectantly of His second coming? When you, when you think of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, it's something that strikes you with fear or with joy. Now certainly all of us, even Christians who've been walking with the Lord for years, have things in our life we want to improve before the Lord comes. That's called progressive sanctification. We ought to never be content with where we are spiritually. But I'm speaking in overall big picture. When you think and you hear that Jesus is coming again for His church, does that strike you with dread or joy? And if those things are true for you, if you are joyful at the thought of Christ's return, if you are 
boldly proclaiming the gospel, if you have invested wisely in your soul and it manifests itself through selfless living, the Bible gives you great assurance of salvation. But if those things are not true in your life, the Bible gives you no assurance of salvation. In fact, Jesus asked this uh, biting question, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That is, when you stand before the Lord one day, what are you going to offer him for a second chance? Because, dear friends, there is nothing he's in need of that we will have. It will be everlasting too late. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it is a strong word today and uh, causes us to be thoughtful and introspective, which is a good thing. You tell us in your word to examine ourselves from time to time to see that we are in the way. And Father, I I know as I have... uh, examine my own heart and life this week, there are so many ways, Father, where I uh, am imperfect. Father, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for your patience with me and with these people. Father, our heart's desire and ambition is to be more like Jesus. Lord, we're often distracted by the things of this life and we find ourselves pursuing the things of the world. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to lay aside every encumbrance every unimportant thing that we may run with patience this race that is set before us and father i I pray for every man woman boy and girl in this room that you would uh, grant assurance of salvation to all who have genuinely been born again but lord if there be even one here today who has rejected christ and is not saved would you shine your light through the Holy Spirit into their dark heart? Would you open their blind eyes? Would you breathe life into their dead soul and grant them faith and repentance here today? Lord, when that happens, we'll rejoice and give praise to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.